In January of this year, I remember having lunch with my friend and colleague Sabrina at the architecture office that we worked at in Midtown Manhattan. She'd had this big trip planned to go back to see her family for Chinese New Year in Beijing. Chinese New Year is a very special celebration on January 25th. But we were talking about if it was still a good idea to go to Beijing because at the time the very first news of COVID was spreading. And after a lot of deliberation and uncertainty, she decided to go but cut her trip short to come back the day after the New Year. That turned out to be a good idea because shortly after, all travel for non-U.S. citizens coming in from China was banned. Around that same time, though, things were changing at a much more drastic level for people in another part of Manhattan, my favorite neighborhood in Manhattan, Chinatown. Of course, we now know that almost all businesses in other parts of the city were affected many months later, but Chinatown was first to be hit, especially by this pandemic-sponsored new wave of xenophobia that was fueled by things like the U.S. president calling COVID the Chinese virus. What I found really inspiring during this time are the efforts of a group of community organizers and designers who've been helping Chinatown recover. Today, we take a look at the work that's been put in the past eight months to help sustain Chinatown as the cultural, historical, architectural jewel that it is. Welcome back to Full Hose. This is a place where I talk about architects as agents of change in the real world. My name is Horsheed, and the hose won't love me unless I speak Latin. Chinatown is a neighborhood that covers around two square miles in lower Manhattan. It's bordered on three sides by Manhattan's priciest neighborhoods, Soho to the north, Financial District to the south, and Tribeca to the west. It has the largest concentration of Chinese residents in the Western Hemisphere, with a resident population of 150,000, which is around half of the population of Lower Manhattan. Manhattan's Chinatown is the heart of a large network of Chinatowns across the New York boroughs, two significant ones being Flushing, Queens, and Sunset Park, Brooklyn which are satellite Chinatowns developed later as residents and workers dispersed to other parts of the city in the 80s and 90s. Today, Chinatown stands roughly on the grounds of Five Points, which was the most notorious neighborhood in 19th century America. Named for the five-cornered intersection of Anthony, Orange, and Cross Streets, which is the junction of Baxter Street and Worth Street today. Five Points was Manhattan's original immigrant enclave. In the 1800s, Waves of Irish, German, Eastern European, Jewish, Chinese, and Italian immigrants moved to the neighborhood. There were many studied accounts of Five Points. However, journalists and writers like Jacob Rees and Charles Dickens painted a distorted image of the neighborhood that was colored by their racial prejudices, presenting it primarily as a crime-infested, disease-ridden slum. These accounts of the neighborhood contributed to its raising and its erasure and popularized activities like slumming, where rich New Yorkers would visit Five Points to marvel and gawk at its poverty. There are actually very few studied accounts of the neighborhood's rich contributions to the social, cultural, and economic identity of New York. 
You're walking east on Pell Street. You've just come from Mott Street, which is the old spine of the neighborhood and is now a sea of outdoor dining contraptions in front of the old tenement buildings. Tenements were three to seven story buildings that became the predominant housing typology in New York City in the 19th century. This is old Chinatown. It's the area west of Bowery that's been settled by Cantonese-speaking Chinese-Americans since the 19th century. Pell Street has been close to traffic since the start of lockdown, so you're actually walking right in the middle of the street, which is about eight feet wide, and the sidewalks are no more than five feet. Let's keep walking until you get to the intersection of Doyers. Now, pause here for a second. If you look ahead a little bit, that's that restaurant that you were at a couple of days ago. It was for the restaurant block tour that Welcome to Chinatown put on. Welcome to Chinatown has been one of the most active groups in the neighborhood in helping the recovery of the businesses. Victoria Lee and Jennifer Tam are residents of the neighborhood with an operations and marketing background. Welcome to Chinatown started around March of this year. And kind of the inspiration that we got for this initiative was out of seeing the need for support for these small businesses that make up the neighborhood in the face of COVID. With Chinatown being a tourist destination and lacking that foot traffic, and many of our Chinatown small businesses, particularly restaurants, they rely on low profit margins but high volume. They've been helping businesses drive cash flow and they've started their own relief fund. Many of the um, small business owners in Chinatown, it's immigrant owned. For the immigrant or older business owners, grants are going up online. And if languages, if applications are, are not being translated into multiple languages, by the time that someone's able to get access onto the website, those funds are gone. And that's what we're seeing. And that's why we started the Longevity Fund was we saw that there were gaps at the state and federal level. And one of the burdens is overhead costs that businesses just need to be able to be open. And in order to do that, it's to pay for their rent, insurance, labor, even purchasing PPE. That's something that we've never had to do before. So that's where we felt, okay, how do we address these gaps? And it's through starting our own um, small business grant program. And another thing they've done really successfully is partner with designers to design merchandise. Um, we started the merchandise collection as a new revenue stream. This is a way of you know introducing a new revenue model to the businesses. They're also able to have the assets of what we design and partnering with a freelance designer who's donated their efforts. It's all led by our head of creative, Harry Tran. So he, he helps to identify those collaborations. When we talk to these small businesses, they don't have cash to hold inventory. They've never thought about merchandise. How do you launch it? So it's collaborating with our designers and then us figuring out, okay, how can we operationalize it for them so that this could be profitable. In the late 1800s, New York's Chinese immigrants established a robust, self-supporting community in Chinatown. Chinatown's growing internal structure of family and district associations and businesses provided its residents with jobs, economic aid, social services, and translation support. Chinatown soon became a social and political center for all of the city's Chinese community, who would typically travel to Manhattan's Chinatown for grocery shopping and socializing and for business. However, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 barred the wives and children of male laborers from moving to the United States, which resulted in the separation of families and the creation of a male-dominated bachelor society in Manhattan's Chinatown. In 1943, after 61 years of official racial discrimination, the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed, and Chinatown gradually became a family-oriented community. It grew significantly in population and area following the elimination of the immigration quota in 1963, and today, the majority of its inhabitants are from Guangdong and Fujian provinces in China, and from Hong Kong. 
The Cantonese and Taiwanese community is well established since the 60s and 70s and was joined in the 80s and 90s by the Vietnamese and Fujianese communities. Now you can take a ride on Doyers. Doyers is another one of these super romantic narrow alleys. Some of the very first Chinatown businesses opened right here. Dim sum parlors and theaters. Now that the street is all pedestrian, there's full dining table sets right in the middle of the street. Some of the restaurants have even scattered house plants in between the dining tables. Potted palms and spider plants make the street feel like someone's outdoor living room. As you keep walking, the street feels so quaint, and it's hard to tell that back in the day, in the 19th century, this very spot used to be called the Bloody Angle because of all the violence that happened here. But just follow the bend of the street all the way to the end. We're going to now leave the rather touristy old Chinatown. So let's cross the lanes of traffic on Bowery. This area east of Bowery is New Chinatown. It's where Mandarin speakers and businesses settled relatively later than the Cantonese speakers. All right, walk straight ahead until you hit East Broadway. This part now is Little Fuzhou, the Fujianese enclave. You have dumplings on the mind, so let's speed up. So you walk past a bunch of glass condos, take a left on Broadway, keep going, all the way past the Manhattan Bridge. And finally, at long last, here we are. At the bottom of a skinny six-story glass office building is Lanzhou Ramen. It's known for its hand-pulled noodles and dumplings and Malatang hot pot. The sign above the restaurant reads in Chinese, Hao Fusheng Noodle Shop. The restaurant's street frontage is small, but in front of it, taking up the full width of the building in the parking lane, is a beautifully detailed patio. It's outdoor dining tables inside of a set of painted plywood barricades. The barricades are 30 inches tall. They're rectangular, boxy shaped. They sit on four stubby legs. They have this beautiful illustration on them, a black and white graphic of two women in high buns pulling an endless set of noodles between them. Where the barricades face the cars in the street that are whizzing by, their corner edges are taped with reflective tape for visibility. This outdoor dining structure where you're about to have your dumplings was designed by an architecture trio called A plus A plus A. Now go inside, grab your dumplings, and when you come back, we're going to talk to the architects and the community organizer that they partnered with, Think Chinatown. Andrea Chenay, Ashley Kuo, and Ariana Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your office? I was just going to say we had a very similar beginning to our office as your podcast. I mean, it's basically called A plus A plus A because we're Ariana, Ashley, and Andrea. We went to school together at Columbia School of Architecture. And even before we graduated, we applied for a grant. And just kind of organically, we became a studio. And it's been really good so far. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get that grant, but we continued that project. And that's sort of yeah. how we started. <laughs> That's dope. I would love to hear about your guys' project, Assembly for Chinatown. So Assembly for Chinatown is basically designing outdoor dining for Chinatown businesses, specializing on businesses that are family-owned. So what we found in our research is that a lot of the efforts going on right now 
citywide and also in Chinatown itself are going to the more popular streets and the more popular businesses. There's these like, in a way, branded streets in Chinatown that are the most popular, that everyone knows, that everyone walks around. But then there's these other little businesses that don't necessarily get as much attention and therefore are ignored. A lot of the business owners don't speak the language and Assembly for Chinatown is really for these people. And it's really about bringing the whole community of Chinatown together to both fund and build these structures. So how did you guys end up designing and building outdoor dining structures for Chinatown? This year, since we've been stuck inside, we've thought about all of these restaurants in Chinatown or in our neighborhoods that have been closing. And we're like, it would be a great opportunity to help them bring their businesses outside. And the first thing we did was create a guidebook. We read through all of the New York City DOT guidelines and was looking at all of the rules and regulations and seeing what we could do in creating a guidebook that sort of laid out all of this stuff so that it was all compliant and affordable and it was safe in terms of social distancing. And with that, we started to approach different organizations that we wanted to work with. So you guys, on your own accord, created this document of Department of Transportation compliant outdoor dining structures for restaurants that need it for business to survive. And a lot of these businesses are scared to do anything because if you get a warning in 24 hours, if you don't change whatever is non-compliant, then you are immediately fined $1,000. The restaurants section breaks it down based on, I think there's five or six different barrier modules that are all constructed using basic materials like two by threes and plywood with slightly different configurations based on what a restaurant needs. So there's one that incorporates a table ledge that extends off so that you can just pull up chairs. There's another that has a sort of a bar top height. Sometimes it's just drinks. Sometimes it's a single person standing eating a bowl of noodles, like having some flexibility built into it was important. So we developed these as a series of modules. It sort of breaks down each piece, both on how it's constructed, but also with a general cost estimate. So you guys have already done all this research and design work, and you're looking for organizations to partner up with to get these structures built. That's when you connect with Ying Kong, the co-founder of Think Chinatown, who's a longtime community organizer, and she is looking for designers. We have a lot to owe to Yin for this, too, because she was the one that has been, you know, our community liaison and the person on the ground. So she immediately said, I already have a test, like a pilot test restaurant. I'm going to send them their info to you, see how your initial modules can fit into that. We ended up adapting some of them based on feedback from the owner and basically had this really quick charretting back and forth process over five days. Um, and then immediately jumped into like budgeting and fundraising and all of these other components to make it possible. So sourcing our, we sourced our materials from Chinatown Building Supply. We were also talking <laughs> to Chinatown Lumber. You know, we've been talking to other carpenters and contractors who are building on the street. So trying to get a sense of both what's needed on a hyper-local level and also like how we can begin to infuse the success of this project into other businesses so that it's not just benefiting restaurants, but it's actually having like a positive economic ripple effect on the rest of the neighborhood. And the pilot project, facilitated by Think Chinatown, was funded through donations. So the burden of paying for the build-outs was not on the restaurant owners. And Think Chinatown picked the size of the build-outs, and they were really your community liaison. They are the type of institution that are extremely embedded within the community, to a point where when we were building on site and, you know, running the volunteer events, 
every other person that would walk by would tap Yin on the back and being like, what are you doing? Like, this is great. And then she would talk to them about it. And everyone is either like her auntie or like her friend or, you know, and someone that she knows. And in the same way, she knows almost all the businesses in Chinatown. So it was really her idea to say, let's start fundraising and let's put together a budget for how much it would cost to do one site so that we can fundraise enough to do at least 10 of them. So what was the process from design to construction to completion for the first site? The first thing that happened is that we priced the project. We talked to the manufacturers because we thought initially that we were going to get things built off-site. And then we pivoted to looking for a carpenter. The three of us work in different offices in New York. So we have some contacts. Someone that I know who is a badass contractor, also happens to be a woman, also happens to be Asian, decided you guys are doing this really cool thing. I'm just going to do it with how much money you have right now. With that, we sealed the main construction. And then she was like, you know, painting, sanding, finishing everything is, I mean, I'm going to have to charge you a lot of money because that's a lot of work. So we started the call for volunteers. And even though it's a little bit tricky when you're working with people that don't necessarily do this often and might need more direction, they were super enthusiastic, super professional. They helped prime the inside and the outside of the barricades. They sanded every single corner. And then in the meantime, while we were looking for volunteers, we also put out a call for artists. And Instagram has really, really been our friend. Kat Lamb, who is a local artist, messaged us and sent us her Instagram page. And we were like, we love it. And she nailed it. It's so beautiful. And what have you guys been learning from the process of completing every single one of the build outs? Whatever we learn from each building site, we're hoping to integrate into the booklet as the sort of knowledge base for what we're doing. So one small example would be we originally specced like two inch casters on these barricades. But after coordinating with this, uh, our contractor, she recommended a slightly bigger size. And so like that will get baked in into the recommendation. So I'm sure that the next site, which won't have to be on casters because it's not, there are no parking issues or, or standing zone issues there. It's going to be built on the ground. So there's probably going to be something else that comes up already. One of them I know has like a giant pothole in the middle. And so we've been talking to Yin about like, what's the strategy with restaurants that have really messy roadways in front of them. So I think that's an interesting challenge for us as designers and as coordinators is to take as much as we can standardize, we will. But at the same time, every site is going to throw something slightly different at us. And lastly, what did you guys learn about the workflow just between the three of you? It was a little bit tricky because we were sort of acting as designers. And although we were working with a contractor, we were sourcing all the materials because they were purchased with donations. So there was this sort of interesting chain of workflow and financing that came with it. Unexciting like spreadsheet coordination and calling material suppliers while Andrea was running social media campaigns and calls for volunteers. Ashley was making our booklet translation, so we had it done in time for the opening. So it was kind of this massive coordination effort, but it all came off relatively smoothly for an an on-site build. And all the sites look so beautiful. Thank you all so much. The design guide is available in English and Chinese on the A plus A plus A website, as well as at thinkchinatown.org slash assembly. 
Ying Kong, the co-founder of Think Chinatown, comes from an urban studies background from Bartlett and Columbia. She worked for a number of years in the architecture space in China before coming to Manhattan's Chinatown to team up with other women who were active in the community to form Think Chinatown. We found that there were a lot of obstacles for business owners in our community. The payroll protection plan was structured in a way that disadvantaged family-owned, cash-based economy, smaller shops that have very low margins and very high percent of cost is rent rather than payroll, which is, you know, the typical story of mom-and-pop survival business in Chinatown. She sees outdoor dining as another tool to help the recovery of these businesses, but there are obstacles in Chinatown. One was that outdoor dining isn't a common practice in Chinatown. Second is the streetscape in Chinatown. Very narrow sidewalk, very narrow streets, just not built for dining. Streets are, you know, usually pretty crowded. The network of how wholesalers work in Chinatown, there's like a lot of hand truck deliveries. There are like 40 plus produce vendors in Chinatown. And so what happens because there's no refrigeration in most of these locations is that they just have very constant deliveries from wholesalers within the neighborhood. And so it's like a very enmeshed network that has to keep ticking, right, to get the produce to retail every day. There are larger wholesalers in Long Island City and elsewhere that drive into the local wholesalers that then distribute to Chinatown retailers via hand trucks. So there's a lot of activity happening in the narrow space of the sidewalk. And because the stores don't have a back, the sidewalk essentially becomes a loading dock. And even, you know, with open restaurant, right, you, you're allowed eight feet into the street. We can't build eight feet into the street because the streets are so narrow that if you did, a car would hit your barrier. Something that we realized as we worked is that even though there was this delightful guidebook that A plus A plus A had put out, it wasn't going to be as easy as like this plug and play concept that they originally came up with. Actually, each storefront has its own challenges, street grade, where the fire hydrant might be. And also to maximize the use of that, we had to tailor it to how the businesses might use it. So for instance, with Royal Seafood, we put in the standing bar around the edges because they have two types of service. They have dim sum in the daytime and then like family style meals at night. Um, and the owners didn't want to do service during the day. So we saw this in the evenings, bigger tables could be put there for more family-style meals. Some of the fundamental issues in the neighborhood tie to property assessment and rent stabilization. Because while the residential units are rent-stabilized, the retail is not. The shops are not rent-stabilized. There's no commercial rent stabilization, right? So that puts all the pressure right there. Also, property assessments are all over the place. And this is a very nerdy and tricky part that doesn't Instagram well and people won't understand how dangerous this is. Property taxes haven't been raised much. But property assessment, which means how much the property rate is assessed for and therefore that percentage that the tax rate hasn't changed that much. But if your assessment changes, it's still a lot more money, right? The whole property assessment process is really opaque. So similar types building in a block can have wildly different assessments and no one knows why. 
property owners in Chinatown are oftentimes community members themselves, and they're being faced with these challenges coming from the city. And they're also trying to deal with, you know, these situations too. And so then when rents are raised on the storefront, people are really quick to be like, oh, those greedy landlords. I'm not saying that they aren't out there, you know. What I'm saying is there are a lot of things behind the scenes that are very nuanced when property taxes were due in your city. And the small landlord group in Chinatown was trying to ask for some sort of break. Can you make the penalty for payment lower? So it's kind of like a low interest rate. Our property isn't, shouldn't be assessed at this value right now. Like our commercial tenants haven't paid rent in months, right? But the city did not give them much of a break. And come August, there are a lot more closures of businesses. They held on through the whole pandemic and then they couldn't make it past then. There's a lot of these factors that aren't so easily packaged. The workaround for some of these long-lasting Chinatown businesses like Nonhua and the beautiful Wing Wo is that the people who own the business own the building. They don't have the burden of rent and they still make business from the rent of the units above. There is even more nuance in the way people have been helping Chinatown in the pandemic. The architecture firm Rockwell Group partnered with Chinatown Bid, Business Improvement District, to design and build dining structures for Mott Street. Mott Street is the most visible of the Chinatown streets. The businesses have relatively more capital, and they'd already built their dining structures. They were not told of the Rockwell Group project arriving. The structures that they'd built on their own, with their own money, were taken away with a U-Haul. And the resulting structures, though architect-designed and very neatly assembled, are plastered with corporate sponsorship. The community groups on the ground were marginally engaged, and one can't help but think that the project feels more performative than anything else. There is political motives for people helping Chinatown. There are, for example, people who advocate for more of the streets to be closed entirely to traffic which of course glosses over multiple issues, including car access for the elderly and non-able-bodied population of Chinatown, people, for example, who regularly use access a ride. Most simple one-size-fits-all solutions that look great on Instagram are quite reductive to the issues that the neighborhood is facing. It's important to tackle these issues with a nuanced understanding of the different people and businesses that are negotiating ownership of the same space of the street. Today's gumball is short and sweet. For architects, gumball is a widget in the software Rhino that allows you to rotate, scale, and move objects. Can't live without gumball. For non-architects, gumball is a brightly colored ball of gum. Something to chew on. Signage has the most significant visual presence in Chinatown. Li Wei Wang, Rei Wu, and Winston Yuan explored this in their project, Chinatown Stories. I was really interested in the relationship between aesthetics and urbanism. Uh, we always think about drawing and plan in sections, but we felt like that wasn't really a great way to capture urbanism. There were all these other ways of analyzing urbanism that included looking at the signage or looking at all these ephemeral things like even takeout menus or like the ways that storefronts would tape these takeout menus uh, onto the windows that we felt like contributed so much more to the character of the space rather than just the plan and section. If you just look at the plan and section, it, it doesn't really tell you anything about Chinatown. If you even go on Google Maps and, and you search up to Chinatown, there's a defined boundary of where Chinatown is. But we all know that's sort of incorrect. 
So we had this idea of you know, mapping signage on the streets, trying to screenshot every single Chinese sign, and then overlaying that back onto the map, creating sort of signage heat map to see where really the boundaries of Chinatown were. Illustrator and artist Felicia Lang has spent the pandemic making 280 line drawings of the elevation of the storefronts in Chinatown, which now acts like a bit of a time capsule since many of the businesses have closed. To her, the signage speaks of generational shifts or intergenerational gaps, with the younger generations of business owners having distinct branding and many of the older ones sticking to simple picture grids of menus taped on the window. My gumball today is at 105 and a half Moscow Street. It's this skinny, tiny street that connects Mott Street to Columbus Park in an unassuming two-story brick building. On the second floor is a window and a Juliet balcony above which a green awning still reads everything frosted. This cupcake store that is no longer used to be a Michelin-rated cupcake store by John Wu. To get to the cupcakes on the second floor, one would enter the single door at the street level to be faced immediately with a set of stairs that shoot up, the walls on both sides painted with a mint green, and on each of the 12 risers is pasted quick information about everything frosted. Step, welcome, step, everything frosted, step, cupcakes, step, cookies, step, desserts, step, birthday cake, step, wedding cake, step, 212-227-9828, step, www.everythingfrosted.com, step, step. Now you would be at the kitchen slash office slash cupcake counter where you're going to get a black sesame cupcake with pink champagne buttercream frosting. The signage so wittily incorporated into the stairs and framing the Juliet balcony very effectively pulls you in from the street and up into the little cupcake haven. Signage, menu, architecture combined. That's it for this episode of Full Hose. Thanks to all my guests, whose work as highlighted in this episode can be found on the Full Hose Instagram at F-U-L-L-H-O-W-Z. I want to give a special shout out to another project by Li Wei Wang in collaboration with a team including Iris Yu and Betty Wang. The Visibility Project, visibility-project.org, is a qualitative and quantitative study of the racial and gender-based biases of architectural institutions conducted at Yale School of Architecture. It's a laudable effort in the academic space in a similar cadence as the projects in this episode and in the same time frame. As usual, our cover art is by Yu Cha Go and our transition music is by Lucas Wynn. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and write us a review. Thanks for listening. Bye.